as we approach the end of 2023, one thing that many in agriculture thought would happen this year that hasn't is a new farm bill. The farm bill attracts, you know, this outsized attention. It's carrying some baggage that it, uh, you know, that probably was not envisioned, you know, 80 to 100 years ago when this process was started. That's Dr. Bart Fisher, who spent eight years with the House Agriculture Committee and today is a professor of ag policy at Texas A&M. The lack of a farm bill brought up a lot of questions for me about this legislation. Like, what are the impacts of not having this bill in place? What causes these types of delays? And are these farm bills, which have been around since the 1930s, even still relevant? It's just incredibly important for the productive capacity of this country that we maintain a safety net for growers because it costs so much to produce. Bart gives me quite an education about the past, present, and future of the Farm Bill. We talk about some of the nuances to getting these bills passed and what goes into these Farm Bills, from support programs to crop insurance to conservation and beyond. And we cover the impacts of the policies on farmers and rural economies. Farm Bills aren't written for the good times, they're written for the bad times. One of the challenges, though, is that even though they're written for the bad times, they're often written during the good times. The Farm Bill episode you didn't know you needed with Dr. Bart Fisher on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerd. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Now, before we dive in, I want to thank our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is a company that tells you what you don't want to know. Every three seconds, FarmWave's Harvest Vision system is counting your harvest losses off the header and from the combine and reporting them to you in the cab in real time. Make changes on the fly and watch your loss counts drop without having to stop or do manual harvest loss counts again. Models are currently available in corn and soybeans with several other crops in development for release soon. But don't take my word for it. Listen to an actual FarmWave customer. I had firsthand experience with it. It proved itself right out the gate the first minute we started running it. That is hard to argue with. You know, I mean, when you see something instantly showing you a return, there's something to it. And then it's done it over the, you know, we've done it multiple times. Would I like to get through a season without it showing me anything? Yeah, that'd be great. It means I'm doing it right. But it's also nice having that safety net that if something, when you're getting to the end of the season, you're maybe not checking everything the way you should, or you just assume everything's adjusted correctly or it's running right well this is going to tell you otherwise if you do have something that's not right join the ranks of farmers deploying harvest vision in their fields to ensure no bushel gets left behind put ai to work on your farm just visit farmwave.io to chat with one of their experts or locate a dealer near you thank you so much to farmwave for supporting farm innovation and the future of agriculture podcast All right, now back to today's episode with Dr. Bart Fisher. Bart is a research assistant professor and the co-director of the Agricultural and Food Policy Center in the Department of Agricultural Economics at Texas A&M University. His applied research focuses on solving real-world policy problems for agricultural producers and on anticipating potential policy changes for Congress to consider. Before joining Texas A&M, Fisher served for more than eight years on the House Agriculture Committee in the U.S. House of Representatives. He was involved in every major agricultural policy development in Washington, D.C. over those eight years, including the 2014 and the 2018 farm bills. He's the fifth generation to be raised on his family's wheat, cotton and cattle operation in southwest Oklahoma, and he continues to be actively involved there. 
Uh, for those of you who may not be super familiar with the Farm Bill, as a general definition, it's it's a comprehensive law that is hopefully passed every five years to provide an opportunity for policymakers to address agricultural and food issues, which, as you know from listening to the show, are always changing and evolving. So it makes sense that uh, our policymakers would take a look at this and periodically review what's necessary for food security and for the future of uh, agriculture and food in this country. Uh, we're going to reference in this interview a few titles of the Farm Bill by number. So if you don't have those fresh on your mind, I'll just give you a bit of a glossary here. Uh, specifically, we're going to talk about Title One, which is known as the Commodity title of the Farm Bill. These are all of the price support and income support programs for the most widely produced commodities. Think corn, soy, wheat, uh, etc. So price support, meaning the government would put like a floor in price to uh, help support the market so that farmers can remain viable and in business or income support when needed uh, for more direct payments and uh, ways to support the income of those who produce our food. We'll also talk about Title II, which includes conservation programs uh, and Title IV, which is focused on nutrition and the SNAP program, which um, some of you might know is formerly known as food stamps. All right, so that, that's enough context. Just know those titles, Title I, commodity programs, so price and income support, Title II, conservation, Title IV, nutrition. I think I got those right. I'll drop you into the conversation here where Bart is talking about how the farm bill has evolved over time, uh, what he's learned from the research he's doing while writing the book. He's currently writing about the history of the House Ag Committee and why he believes the farm bill is still very relevant today. my time on the hill i mean i hear it all the time right it's time to you know to scrap a farm bill because it's mired in new deal policies from the 1930s you know responding to the great depression right and and i've heard i've had people come into my office when i was on the hill saying it i've read it in articles you know news articles i've heard members of congress quoting it you know in opposition to farm bills and and just that one alone to me has been fascinating to see just how much things have changed uh, over the last the last hundred years. It's actually been pretty remarkable to the point where you know we started this exercise with the federal government you know in a very heavy handed way weighing in in controlling what producers were producing and then you know so pretty severely impacting the market on the price support side you know where we've you know completely shifted. Uh, in perspective to where the federal government is fairly hands off, you know, attempting to provide risk management tools, but otherwise letting the market clear. And all of, all of that, you know, largely started shifting in the mid 1990s with, you know, when, when Senator Roberts, then chairman of the House Ag Committee, you know, wrote his farm bill. And so, you know, that is one where it's, it's very easy at the 30,000 foot level to lob all of these accusations at farm bills. But if you actually study the history and know what you're talking about, you realize that a lot of a lot of the folks who are, are making those accusations have, you know, no idea what they're talking about. I mean, another example, too, is just you know, the, the battles we have nowadays are very similar to the ones, you know, they had then. And, you know, if you look around, you know, kind of the 1950s, for example, where you had control going back between Republicans and Democrats, and it was really following the 1954 Farm Bill where you had Republicans ended up in the wilderness for 40 years. And a lot of it was in blowback to the way policymakers responded uh, to the events of the day then where you had Democrats in, in charge for almost four decades. And 
one that was interesting to me, and I don't know if anyone listening will have ever heard of it before or not, but you know, one proposal at the time from the Secretary of Ag then, the Brannon plan, you know, Secretary Brannon, who worked for for President Truman, he you know, he proposed this radical shift at the time when they were working on what we now call the Permit Act, you know, 1949 Farm Bill. Well, the Brannon plan in, in 49 that he had proposed was this significant shift. And if you start to dig into the details and look at it, it was really arguing an income support approach, you know, to to farm policy, where instead of the government controlling, you know, setting these price supports and then, you know, pulling in all of these stocks to support the price and having, you know, having a bunch of surplus hanging over the market, his proposal was let the market work and pay the difference, which is eerily similar uh, to the policies that we had in place post-1996. And so he is, you know, probably a good 40 years uh, 40 years ahead of his time. And so for me, it's just fascinating to look back, you know, at at examples like that, where, you know, we sit here today on any given topic, right? And we think that, well, the situation we're dealing with right now has never happened, or, you know, it, it's different than it was in the past. No, we've been dealing with the same sort of issues. Uh, and the question is, do we learn from them or not? And so uh, to me, that was just, that was one example. It was pretty neat, you know, as part of writing the book, we went through all the archives of the committee, you know, during COVID, we couldn't get into the archives. So they sent the archives back to the committee and we spent several days in Washington pouring through all of it. And there I am holding, you know, holding the original uh, Brandon plan with the secretary's signature on it from 70 years ago. So for policy nerds like me, that was fascinating. It may not be to, to, to folks listening, but, uh, you know, for a guy who spends every day thinking about farm policy, it was a pretty neat. Yeah, and, and I think uh, this question could be relevant to today, which which is you know what what drives the timing of of the farm bill in terms of you know we thought we were going to have a farm bill this year as as we talked today November eighth maybe maybe we're not going to have one this year um, what factors are at play here that influence how long it takes to get a farm bill and uh, what might accelerate it into happening. Great question, Tim. And you can get me on my soapbox quickly on this on this topic because there's there's a lot that goes into it. So without completely going down the, the rabbit hole here, you know, it's farm bills are very interesting animals, right? I mean, we do them roughly since roughly 60, 1965, we've been doing them, you know, as five-year bills. Every single farm bill is really just a, we suspend permanent law. You know, back in the 1938, 1949 farm bills, those are the permanent laws. Ever since then, we write a farm bill that temporarily suspend those those laws for five years. But agriculture is very unique in that regard. You know, much of the federal government's on autopilot. You know, these programs don't have to be reauthorized. And in the case of agriculture, the argument all along has been, well, we need to do this every five years to stay current, right? To keep up with the times. You know, that has been the impetus behind doing these five-year omnibus farm bills because without them, we'll revert, you know, the, the threat of reverting to parity prices under under permanent legislation. And so to some degree, the timing is a function of how these have been set up, you know, for almost a hundred years now, right? And it's every five years we go through this exercise. And and it is, again, it's very unique compared to a lot of the rest of the federal government. I think the challenge nowadays is because it's one of the few things that moves through Congress on a regular basis, it attracts all of this extra attention. For example, from a budget perspective, you'll see all sorts of amendments to cut farm policy that you know, I'll sit there scratching my head wondering where in the world is this coming from? But if nothing else is moving through Congress and you have members who are concerned about, you know, the fiscal path that our country is on, 
well, here's a vehicle for them to look to, you know, to a farm bill. And so the, the farm bill attracts, you know, this outsized attention that I think is partly just a function of how, it, how it's all set up to work. And so it's carrying some baggage that it, uh, you know, that probably was not envisioned, you know, 80 to 100 years ago when this process was started. Uh, but nonetheless, it is what it is now. And so, I mean, if you take, for example, you mentioned, you know, the current farm bill. Uh, we've just seen in the House, you know, a, a struggle to even get a continuing resolution finished. Essentially kick the can at last year's spending levels. You know, it was a struggle to get that done. We only got it done short term through the 17th of November. You can then imagine the struggle of getting a five-year omnibus bill with a price tag in the neighborhood of one and a half trillion dollars finished, right? And so you just have all of these things at, at, at play now, which, you know, we can save we can save another podcast for okay well what do you do about all of that because I, I think there are some you know we could rethink how we do how we do farm bills but you know given how we have done you know the last fifteen of them or so uh, we've just been on on this cycle and again in principle it makes sense right you know the ag economy is constantly changing you have constant pressure in the countryside changing dynamics you want the farm bill to be reflective of that. Unfortunately, I think the last several cycles has been more reflective of, well, how do we, you know, how can we cut or do with less? And I would much prefer to come at it from a perspective of what risk management tools do farmers really need to stay in business out on the countryside and to keep our country fed? And so you've got those two things in conflict right now and you see it playing out. It makes it very, very difficult to get farm bills done. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what is the general consensus as you hear from farmers and other people with kind of vested interest in, in farm programs of, you know, is the current farm bill uh, doing a sufficient job of providing those risk management tools? You could look at it a couple of ways, Tim. I think in terms of structure, the answer would be absolutely uh, that it works fine, right? You've got this set up now where, you know, crop insurance is the cornerstone of the farm safety net. And, and we'll use a farm bill to make improvements to crop insurance, but crop insurance is independent of a farm bill. It's authorized in the Federal Crop Insurance Act of 1980. So crop insurance is sitting out there permanently authorized on its own. And so what we really use the farm bill for then is, is title one of a farm bill. We're really looking uh, to use it as a as a sort of a counterbalance to crop insurance. And you take both of those policy suites in tandem and they're intentionally designed to work together. You know, on one hand, if prices, if market prices are are doing well, you're at or above break even, and you've got insurance where you can, you know, insure that price and yield, you know, you can survive the year fine. It's what do you do if you end up in a downturn like we saw, you know, coming out of the 2014 farm bill and prices are, you know, at the floor. Yes, insurance is still important. And yes, you know, your banker and others are going to require you to purchase insurance uh, in that case, too. But you're well below break even. And so that's where Title One's you know, designed to step in. It runs counter, essentially counter cyclical to crop insurance. And so in terms of structure, I think the structure works very well. Right. Th those two things working together. Certainly we can always tweak, but I think the structure works fine. I think the, the biggest part of that in, in question mark when you talk to growers is the levels. Are the levels at the right place? And so this farm bill is very much a conversation about, particularly in Title I of the farm bills, about reference prices, particularly on the price loss coverage program. Are those reference prices high enough? And I think resoundingly the answer is no, and primarily because of what, it's co what it costs uh, to produce these days. And that has shifted significantly since the 2018 farm bill was put into place. And so I think you've got the structure from 14 and 18 that still work fine. 
but then, you know, the 18 Farm Bill in terms of levels, certainly it, you know, did not envisage, uh, you know, a, a global pandemic that sent, you know, resulted in, in supply chain chaos and an explosion in inflation, right? And so I, I think this Farm Bill is all going to be about I don't see a huge interest in changing the structure. I think it's much more about, you know, fine tuning the levels of, of support. The challenge is that comes on one hand, that makes things a lot easier on the flip side is that's what costs money raising those levels. And that's why you see this, you know, this ongoing conversation about well, where's the money going to come from to pay for it. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I mean, along similar lines, you know, we saw in the Inflation Reduction Act, the interest in climate smart agriculture and, and investing in climate smart agriculture. Could the farm bill be another vehicle for doing that? And if so, would that show up in a structural change or just a levels change when it comes to something like, I don't know, CRP program or something? I think there's a couple a couple of ways to look at that that as well. You know, I'm I'm a pretty strong believer in, you know, the conservation investments we make and the farm safety net investments that we make, you know, that there's a, there's a place, a unique place for both of those. And I think when we've tried to intertwine the two, we get in trouble. Historically, we used to do that. I mean, from the, the very earliest days, the old you know soil conservation bill in, in 1936 was even back then we were using conservation in tandem with, you know, with supply controls. And so, you know, we've moved on from those days. And to me, your conservation-minded incentive programs run separate from the farm safety net, although we're starting to see a blending of those two, which on the surface may make some sense, but to me is a bit of a, of a red flag because I think you know, it's just incredibly important for the productive capacity of this country that we maintain a safety net for growers because it costs so much to produce. And my worry is those who would like to replace that with conservation aren't really concerned about you know, the safety net aspect of that. And I think it leaves growers in a pretty precarious position. So against that backdrop of, of keeping them separate, then I do think that, you know, if you look at this farm bill, you, you invoked IRA, the IRA funding is short term and we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. But the, the bottom line is that spending, it has to be out the door from USDA by 2031. They had a finite period. And so there's this debate now about, well, will, will the IRA be you know, brought, will that funding be brought inside of a farm bill? And my argument is if you don't bring it inside of a farm bill, it's dead in 2031. That additional you know, $20 billion in budget authority that was offered in, in the IRA, it, it goes bye-bye uh, come 2031. And we're already getting closer and closer to, to that point. And so if you want it to live on beyond that, it has to be a farm bill conversation. I think the concern a lot of observers have and, and policymakers here at the table is, okay, well, are you going to use that funding as a piggy bank to pay for other things? Or are you going to you know, use it to pay for conservation? Well, my argument is, is if it's not a farm bill conversation, you're guaranteeing that it doesn't survive between 2031. So that's the first threshold question is to me, it has to be a farm bill conversation. Beyond that, then, I mean, I think policymakers can decide where the priority should, should lie, right? I I struggle with when you look at Title II of the Farm Bill on conservation. I mean, most of the work, a lot of the work we're doing on conservation and have done for a long time is climate smart, right? No-till, cover cropping have long been part of the suite of tools available through conservation. I know that's the buzzword of the day these days, but our conservation programs have already been climate smart. And so I do, I do question is the best approach to then 
add on new things or to just build on what we already have. And when you look at something like Equip, right, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, super popular, but it's generally oversubscribed two to one, right? We leave half of the applications on the table every year because we just don't have the funding to pay for them. And so is the smarter money on addressing the backlog and equip on cost sharing, even if it is on climate smart things, cost sharing on helping growers, uh, or is it creating new initiatives, you know, in the name of climate smart? And so to me, there's probably a, there's an efficient middle ground somewhere in the middle, uh, in the middle of all of that, um, you know, just in, in my opinion. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And you made a really interesting comment earlier about, you know, because the farm bill is going to come up every five years like clockwork, it becomes this opportunity for, you know, legislators to to express whatever their priority is at the time. And, and hence, there's a lot of baggage that comes with that. Now, I think you were saying that sort of in the context of what what slows down the process of getting a farm bill passed. But but is that also the case for why there's so much in the farm bill that doesn't end up with farmers? A lot of it is is kind of food support programs. Or was that always sort of the intention of, of the bill in the first place? You know, that that dynamic on the food, you know, food versus farm, you know, and putting more you know farm in the farm bill, you know, goes back to the early 1960s, right, where the food stamp program was first authorized. And you you have that alliance created even then, because even at the time, and I mean, now we're talking 70, you know, going on 60, 70 years ago, uh, you saw this recognition that in, increasingly Congress had fewer and fewer rural representatives. And so what I mean, what we've progressively seen over time, though, is just is that has continued to grow, right? You have fewer and fewer representatives, you know, fewer and fewer people involved in agriculture to the point where, you know, Title IV of the Farm Bill of Nutrition titles 83% of the bill now. And when you start to think of it, about it and, and break this apart, you know, you have crop insurance. Again, it's permanent law, Federal Crop Insurance Act. And so what you're really moving in a farm bill now, and with the discussion we just had on the IRA, conservation programs were extended in the IRA. So really what we're talking about is Title I now. And it's the programs designed to support producers and to help keep you know, producers on the farm. And that's less than 5% of this entire farm bill. And so, I mean, I think it's fair for members to, you know, to raise those questions of, you know, is this balance right? I mean, do, do we have this right? And I'm, I'm not one of those who, you know, I'm not a glass half empty kind of guy when it comes to Congress because our system of government is supposed to be messy, right? I mean, democracy is you know, it, it's not neat and tidy. It's very messy with every everybody involved. And our founders intended for the process in Congress to be, be very difficult to get anything done. So you don't have one individual who can shove something, something through Congress. And so I, I don't, I don't lament that side of it. But, you know, the flip side of it, too, is at some point, you know, do we start to, you know, ask the questions of do we do we have, do we have the balance right? And, you know, and, and that is my concern is that with fewer and fewer people, you know, involved directly in production agriculture who don't understand all the intricacies of it, it's easy to look at and say, well, you know, what do we even need all of this stuff for? Well, you know, there's some huge implications, um, you know, tied into the answers of those questions. And I think it, you know, Title I, crop insurance in particular, continue to remain incredibly important, but it is it is caught up in the swirl of, of all the politics that, you know, it, it is just more partisan these days. You know, in, in the past, agriculture, the ag committees used to be more regional battles, and certainly some of those are still there. But you do have these camps now where it tends to be more. I'm either, you know, in the rural America camp or I am in the, the SNAP and nutrition funding camp. And 
I don't think that helps nutrition, nutrition recipient, nutrition funding recipients. And I don't think it helps growers, right, to kind of to force everybody into those camps, because what we need is, is legislators who see the importance of both of those things, you know, and, and revisit it with an open mind. But that's not necessarily the, the state of play these days. Right. Boy, uh, yeah, well, so this is why it's hard to do kind of one podcast episode on the Farm Bill, right? Because there's so much complexity here, uh, but uh, but I'm going to try my best. So, you know, going back to what you've been saying about, hey, we've got permanent authorization for the crop insurance program in the 1980s and separate legislation. We've got Inflation Reduction Act, which really focuses on a lot of these conservation type programs. You're kind of down to, you know, Title One, as you said, which is 5% or so of the Farm Bill. Does this make it so that the Farm Bill is maybe less relevant? or less uh, essential for, for the farm economy than it used to be? Yeah, I think there's a, like most of these things, I think every every uh, answer I've given on here, there's multiple parts to it, right? I mean, I think it kind of depends on, on your perspective, right? And what is the purpose of Title I, for example? Because, I mean, we dealt with this in 2014, right? Prices were high. Uh, we don't, you know, we can eliminate direct payments. We don't need Title I because prices are high. And I remember Mr. Lucas at the time saying, you know, farm bills aren't written for the good times, they're written for the bad times. One of the challenges, though, is that even though they're written for the bad times, they're often written during the good times. And so, and, and I wouldn't necessarily universally say that right now is a good time, right? I mean, net farm income, you know, is back up there, you know, pretty high, but it hasn't been shared the same across all, you know, crops and, and, and livestock. So for anyone listening, who's not necessarily feeling like times are great right now, but in general with net farm income where it is right now, it, I think it does just make it harder to get farm bills done. You know, policymakers aren't hearing it directly from, from the countryside. The concern I have with that, though, is we're not writing it for right now. In fact, I mean, and this is what makes farm policy these days much different than in than in the past, is that you know, we're writing them in anticipation of what's going to happen over the next five years. And so we're writing it for what will happen in year four and year five of a farm bill. And what we learned coming out of 18 was that, you know, the levels weren't up to snuff, particularly in response to inflation. And so you know, we're, we're writing it right now in anticipation of three or four years from now. And to that question of whether or not it's needed, if you end up back in those levels, you find out really quickly that it will be needed. And some crops feel it more acutely than others. You don't have to convince a rice grower of that, for example. They know that very well. They're very much subject to the whims of the rest of the world, right? They have very little influence on global rice price, just given our posture in the world market. You know, on the other end of the extreme, you take, you know, a U.S. corn grower, for example, who where we we still are a major player where we can still have an impact on price where you where you're you're less likely to see these huge swings. Right. It's that I can I can write it out if I've got a short crop prices are going to go up. Right. We've heard that you know a long time. But even there, you start to see things shifting. Right. I mean, just look at the United States on corn vis-a-vis Brazil and where we are on export share, you know, Last year, Brazil displacing the U.S. Uh, in terms of uh, the largest corn exporter. And so even for corn growers, you know, that dynamic is shifting. And so it's easy in isolation to sit here and say, well, with prices where they are now, we don't even need Title I. And my answer to that is, you know, unlike 80 years ago, great, turn it all off. Let it all turn off. The support will turn off. And that's how it's designed to do. But you also need it there and you need it to turn back on if the situation inverts, right, and we end up in a price scenario south of where we are today. And so 
I actually think, you know, the, the policy is designed to accommodate that. But again, the challenge is that when you're trying to write legislation in a time when the sky is not falling, it's hard to get Congress's attention. And frankly, it's hard to get rural America. I mean, you don't see a 1970s tractor cade driving to Washington, D.C. right now. But yeah, you do still see, I mean, folks are engaged. And again, back to Title I, it's playing out primarily in the context of a conversation on reference prices. Mm-hmm. And I, I know I'm uh, jumping back and forth here between like the structure and the content of the farm bill and the process a little bit, but but kind of back on the process side more. So what, what happens right now if um, if, OK, it's clear we're not going to get a new farm bill passed. Uh, do they have to pass an extension of the 2018 farm bill to buy them more time? What does that look like to avoid reverting back to the original legislation from the late 1920s? Great question. And so, you know, and, and I'm reluctant to paint with too broad of a brushstroke, right? Because there are like, let's take you know, one example. You take title three of the farm bill, the trade title, where we do a lot of market promotion work around the world. One, you know, market access program, you know, we're promoting U.S. products to, to, into overseas markets, foreign market development. We're using it primary. I mean, we're using it for similar purposes, a little more focused on building capacity in those countries, you know, tearing down technical barriers in those countries to be able to export more to those to those countries. You know, programs like that, there are more immediate implications you know, of a farm bill uh, expiring when it expired on September 30th. The funding for those, as long as they have baseline funding or a baseline budget, they're okay. And in that case, they they do. They're not losing, you know, they're not losing their funding going forward, but it does affect their authorization to operate in the near term. Another one is a program that, you know, that received money one time in a farm bill in the previous farm bill, you know, they're affected too, right? Because their funding ran out with the end of that farm bill. And so I, I don't want to paint too broadly and imply, you know, that there aren't, you know, direct implications because there are cases like that where they are. But if you look at the other side of the ledger, you know, the conservation programs, again, back to the IRA, were already, you know, by and large, were already extended. So that's not a concern. So then you're sort of left really looking to title one of the bill and the, the so what, you know, we got to September 30th, what happened on title one, for example, you know, ARC and PLC. Well, those programs run through the calendar year or through the crop year, which is essentially the calendar year of harvest. And so those programs run through the end of, of December, December 31, similar, you know, on the dairy programs right now. And so the question then is, okay, well, when does it start to matter? And when it really starts to matter is, okay, well, at what point then do you, do you revert this, you know, the 18 farm bill suspended permanent law for those five years. And so if programs like ARC and PLC run through December 31, then it's January 31 where you start to take notice. And so what happens on January 31 in those cases? Well, you revert back to the 49, 38 and 40 and 49 acts. And you have, it's back to parity pricing. It's really old school recourse price support loans at levels, price levels that are on par with 1910 to 1914. And so uh, those really start to kick in on January 1. Well, the first one that that would matter to is dairy because you have daily harvest, essentially, you know, milking dairy cows. And so that's why if we get to January 1 without a without a farm bill extension, and I know that's all the discussion right now, if you get to January 1, you'll start to hear about the dairy cliff because that's when you start talking about implementing permanent law for dairy. Uh, and so, I mean, you've got a window here. You know, it's not that members didn't care that September 30th came and went. It's that no member who's trying to write a farm bill is eager to get you know to talking about an extension because they want to keep up pressure to get a farm bill done. But you start to get to the end of the year here, 
And I think what's complicating it this time is it's hard to get anything passed through Congress. And so you may only get one bite at the apple. We might ought to have a farm bill extension as part of that. And so I think that's probably driving the conversation where you've seen a lot of the leadership now defaulting to doing a, a one-year farm bill. I think that's probably the reason. And if you look back to you know the extension of the 08 farm bill, it passed, it was signed by President Obama on January 2nd of 2013, right in the middle of, of negotiating a farm bill then too. It was a year-long farm bill and it didn't slow down passage. I mean, we ended up developing it all the way through 2013 and it was signed in early 2014. And so for those who are worried that if you do a long-term extension, it's going to slow down farm bill progress. It, it didn't slow down you know, progress on the 14 bill one iota. We didn't even have to do an extension in 18. And so the last one we looked to is in 14 and that one year extension had virtually no impact on the timing of the process. Let's zoom out a little bit and look to the future. You know, from your lens, you're you're both, as you said, a policy nerd and, and an economist uh, focused on agriculture and from a farm family. You know, how do you see agriculture changing in, in the decades to come? Uh, what should we keep our eye on about where this industry is headed? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, to some re- respect, I think it's it's the same that it's always been in that you know, particularly production agriculture has always been hard. Farming and ranching have always been hard, you know, not for the faint of heart. You know, it, re- it can, it doesn't necessarily reward, it can reward those, you know, who put in the hard work and put the capital at risk. And I think the, the challenge today is that it is so incredibly risky, right? I mean, you, I was just, uh, you know, talking to one of our classes yesterday about risk in agriculture. And I mean, I grew up on a cotton farm. You want to go buy a new baler, you know, cotton stripper, you're talking, and I'm probably even behind now, 900,000 to a million, you know, just to buy a cotton harvester. And I mean, all the technology is fantastic, but it's extraordinarily expensive on a scale, you know, that my granddad or great, great granddad, you know, would have never, you know, never believed possible. And so you've got, you know, growers putting a huge amount of capital uh, at risk. And so, I mean, I think the sky is the limit in terms of opportunity. I mean, I, I don't know of any other profession where you work as hard as you do in production agriculture, but if, if you're willing to put in the, the hard work and the sweat equity, I mean, I think there's going to be tremendous reward out there if for no other reason than people need to continue to eat. But to get the backing to do that, I think to me, farm policy as is rather rather than being something we can get away from, I think it's now it's more important now than ever just because uh, the risks are so high and there is so much money that growers uh, have to put on the table. And if I look out a little bit further, you know, one concern I have, which, you know, I'm not a Thomas Malthus, you know, from the 1700s, 1800s, whatever it was in England, you know, that we were not, we weren't going to be able to grow enough food to feed ourselves. You know, I don't, I don't think that at all. I mean, we're, we're resourceful people and, and rise to the occasion. But the flip side of that is there are very, very few people involved in production agriculture. And, and that's something we we watch very closely. And my argument is if we if we don't get farm policy right, uh, we just exacerbate that problem even more, that there's going to be fewer and fewer and fewer people involved. And I do have a pretty significant concern with what all that pretends for the you know future, of, particularly of rural communities. And so my argument is that you, you, you need sound farm policy, you need adequate access to capital, primarily through credit. And those kind of are the two, the two major building blocks and that it's incredibly important we get both of those right. 
Well, I can't help it, but you just kind of opened up a, a can of worms here with five minutes left. But so we'll see what we can do here. But where in, in policy uh, are we addressing that need for rural economies to bring new blood into agriculture and, and supporting young farmers? Is that part of uh, the farm bill or any of these uh, policies that we've talked about today? Well, I'll endeavor for this to be a five a five minute conversation to Tim. But you know, I one of the, the the concerns I've had you know in twenty years of working in this space and forty of of observing it is that I don't know that we've lost sight of it, but I think we've underappreciated the importance of production agriculture in general, right? I mean, and if you look at all the work we do in rural development and all the other things we're going to bring to rural America. If we lose sight of the fact that those communities exist in in a lot of cases exclusively because of the income generated by production agriculture. And so one of the concerns I have is, I mean, when we think we can keep rural communities vibrant and that we can simultaneously ignore agriculture, I think, you know, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. And there's still folks out there who I think flirt, you know, flirt with that notion. And if you're on the edge, if you're a suburb of a major city, fine, I get all of that. But if you're a rural community like the one I grew up in, where you're not bringing in a factory or whatever to provide additional employment, agriculture is still the primary generator of economic activity. And I do think, you know, the the challenge is you we can either foster that and support it, you know, and, and if we don't, we do so at our own peril. And one of the things I've been observing that I think is a little is concerning is that the solution I hear offered all of the time is, well, we've got to get you know, new people involved in agriculture. Great. hundred percent agree with that. The challenge is that almost always, you know, depending on who, I mean, not universally, but often then I, I hear that piggybacked with, you know, that, well, the, the focus and policy focus has to be on the small producer. And you see this undercurrent right now in Washington, D.C., the small grower versus the large, you know, the large producer. And then small is almost always equated with beginning and new. And so, ergo, to get people involved in production agriculture, we've got to be focused on providing resources to small and beginning, you know, small and that that's the same, presumably the same thing, producer. The challenge is, you know, for commercial production ag, and for if you want to make a go of it full-time as your full-time occupation, I mean, we just talked about the equipment example earlier. I mean, you're, you're investing millions of dollars in equipment, you know, and you're farming a lot of acres then to be able to spread out that risk. And so, you know, this focus on will provide new opportunities for small growers, what you're essentially saying in doing that is, okay, go find an off-farm job, and you probably won't find you you won't necessarily find one in your local community unless it's also tied to agriculture. So go find a job and then we'll help you farm a little bit on the side. My concern is for the one who wants to do this full time. And, and so I think this small versus big argument is absolutely toxic. It's divorced from reality in rural America. And where you see it start to play out is on all these conversations, and this gets really wonky and in the weeds, but things like payment limits and actively engaged right now. We essentially say, hey, if you want access to the farm safety net, you know, we're going to payment limit you and you've got to prove that you're actively engaged and spending enough hours in a tractor seat. And I argue it's having the opposite effect that we want it to, that it's making it harder for, for, for young people to get involved back on the farm. Even if they grew up in it, it's hard unless they actually choose to move back and do it full time. And so 
I think we've got to rethink how we do a lot of that. And unfortunately, I just see more more doubling down on the same policies that, that have gotten us into this mess in the first place. And so that one is an extraordinarily uh, hot button issue that I'm under no illusion is going to be addressed anytime soon. But I think if we want to start to address some of these problems, we've got to start rethinking some of those issues. All right. Well, we will end today's episode right there. Thanks for letting me squeeze in that little part at the end about rural economies. I think that's a really fascinating aspect to the future of agriculture. I don't explore enough on this show. Thank you very much to Dr. Bart Fisher for being on the show. Thank you to my good friend, Trent McKnight, for connecting me to Bart. Uh, and thank you to all of you for for listening to this show. Would you just do me a quick favor? Uh, and if you know of another ag nerd that might be interested in learning something about the Farm Bill, I, I hope you learned something. I know I did. I would love for your fellow ag nerd friends to also learn something about the Farm Bill. Would you just send them this episode? Just text this episode. Say, hey, check this out. I think it's worth your time. I really do appreciate all of you who continue to promote and share the show. I absolutely couldn't do it without you. Uh, thank you to Farmway for being our quarterly presenting sponsor. And as I always say, last but certainly not least, thank you for your time and your attention. I do not take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Ag innovation.